Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's get to the conversation with Bruce Kassman of J.P. Morgan. Bruce, let's start here just quickly. Your reaction to this headline and how you'd process a line like that. There are certain positive developments as far as negotiators from our side informed me. The president of Russia, your thoughts? Um, on the political side, I'm just going to keep an open mind here, recognize the wide range of uncertainty, but also recognize how far the conflict has gone so far in terms of sanctions, in terms of the damage to the Russian economy. And I think the damage that will be inflicted on the global economy, I don't think that will be reversed. I don't think the sanctions will be reversed very quickly, even if there's good news. So from a macroeconomic point of view, which is the world I live in, uh, we are going to feel the effects of this clearly for a while. Dr. Kasman, you know I would never front run Michael Faroli, but let's do it. Okay, you've got a research report coming out tonight, Weekly Prospects. How are you going to adjust GDP? I don't want to get out in front of your clients or Faroli who's working with a slide rule, but how are you going to adjust American and global GDP this weekend? Well, I'm not allowed to front run my forecast either, but um, <laughs> what we've been doing as a, as a general rule has been increasing the drag as we've continued to see more pressure on energy prices. Obviously, the natural gas is, com- is, a, is a big factor in Europe. Uh, crude oil is a factor elsewhere. Uh, broadly speaking, what we're doing is raising inflation and lowering growth, and we continue to move down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would emphasize, though, that we still have growth for the U.S. this year running above trend. We still have the unemployment rate falling. Uh, these are all works in progress in terms of understanding the impact. Uh, but we've done we've dented our views on the U.S. and the global economy. We haven't derailed our view on a still solid recovery. Lisa, I thought that was very diplomatic. I thought Kasman handled that well. Well, basically, you can expect a downward revision, perhaps, if you are ratcheting up inflation expectations and uh, lowering the growth estimates. And it leads us to the R word, the recession call. And Goldman Sachs put out their note with their downgrade of their expectation. They said the uh, U.S. recession chance over the next 12 months, they see it as about 20 to 35 percent. Is that consistent with what you're thinking of? right now, Bruce? I think somewhere in a 20 to 30 percent range makes sense to me. I mean, that's just recognizing how much uncertainty is here. But I I would emphasize that the U.S. economy has shown already pretty significant resilience in the face of shocks. The underpinnings are healthy. So I think what these recession probabilities reflect is how uncertain the potential outcomes are here not the fragility of the U.S. economy right now. Although, Bruce, at 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern, we're going to get that University of Michigan sentiment survey. We're expecting it to post a new post-2011 low. How significant is that in terms of consumer spending and how long this resilience can last? As you know, the Michigan survey has already moved down sharply, and I think it's telling us something important, which is consumers are worried and and particularly worried about the rise in inflation. Uh, What's happening in the conflict is it's pushing higher prices on energy, higher prices on food. U.S. inflation is going to stay elevated. I think the qualitative signal is important. I don't think the level of confidence specifically lines up with spending. The key issue here is we're getting hit by a huge resiliency test in terms of household purchasing power. 
And we do need households to eat into what is a large reservoir of excess savings to make it through this. We do think that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen without some pain in terms of U.S. consumption and U.S. growth overall. Bruce, just quickly, how hard is it going to be for the Europeans to avoid recession over the next 12 months? Much harder than the U.S. And I think the question there really is how strong is their commitment to take the pain of cutting off natural gas supply from Russia? uh, And how willing are they to offset some of that drag uh, with fiscal supports? Uh, Right now, uh, we're thinking Europe is going to be flirting with quarters of growth close to zero. uh, And I think we do need to see uh, a significant fiscal response here, cushioning the blow uh, to keep the European recovery going. Hey, Bruce, awesome. As always, Bruce Kassman of JP Morgan. Right now on the attitude of America towards war and towards the moment of this fractious 2022, Mohammed Yunus joins us, editor-in-chief at Gallup. Gallup is a polling organization. They've never done work for this party or that party. They were seminal in the 30s of saying, no, FDR will win versus Alf Landon, and they've moved on there to measuring America's tone. I want to know, Mohammed, on the death of the American liberal order. We've got a reaffirmation of war in Europe, not the Liberal Party or the left of the Democrats, but the sense of a liberal order coming out of World War II, the end of the Cold War. How have you polled that in recent days? I'll tell you, Tom, uh, there couldn't have been a better time to come out of the field with our last survey. We do something called the World Affairs Survey, where we ask Americans basically, what role should America play in the world and what threats does it face? We came out of the field literally on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine. And before any troops or tanks actually crossed the border, Americans were pretty focused on this issue more than uh, we usually see. And I can point to many metrics. First of all, just the favorability of Russia has hit an all-time negative high of 85%. So when you think about China as a focus in the United States, it's only 79% uh, favorability. Russia has now outdone that. For context, in 2003, Russia had a 63% favorable rating with the American public. When we ask Americans about who is the greatest enemy facing the United mm-hmm. States, not surprising, China comes on top at 49. Right. Russia actually came out right under them at 32. Um, we ask about a series of critical threats to the vital interests of the United States. We saw an uptick in Americans' concern with the military power of Russia increasing. 59% okay. of Americans well, described that. Because of time, I want to be sure, because Lisa and John want to get in here. How isolation are we right now? We're not that isolationist. I would argue that when you look at the recent polls of the last week, the public is actually far ahead of leadership, both here and in Europe. Um, Every decision the Biden administration has made has been supported by public opinion prior to it being taken. So the notion that Americans are isolationist or checking out is not in any way supported by data. And we see a huge difference between now and 2015, when there was a war in Ukraine between Russia um, and, and Ukraine, and Americans were not nearly as dialed in or focused on. But Mohammed, how much are they concerned also about the inflationary backdrop? And does that contribute to uh, a concern about their own well-being versus this feeling of in- injustice that's going on with Ukraine? 
Lisa, you nailed it. Before the invasion, 79% of Americans said that inflation is likely to go up a lot in the next six months. That was a record high that we haven't seen in decades here. So you can only imagine now that oil prices have exploded. That concern is only going to skyrocket. Um, I do, though, uh, caution against thinking that because of that financial impact, Americans are going to kind of shy away because the decisions the Biden administration have taken, like no longer importing Russian gas and a lot of talk about oil prices and gas prices, don't seem to have scared Americans away from the focus on the importance of this conflict for U.S. vital interests. Mohammed, what are you looking for to determine a shift in that? Because we were just talking with Bruce Kasman of J.P. Morgan about the resiliency of the American consumer, about despite some of the concern of inflation, the concern of yet another crisis in a crisis-riddled era, that people are going out and spending, people are still living. What are you looking at for the sentiment to shift to indicate perhaps a deterioration in that? Well, our economic confidence index measure, which basically asks Americans, how is the economy doing for you right now and in the future, in the foreseeable future, remains in the negative. It's been improving, but inflation has really been dragging down Americans' perceptions of the economy. So we're, we're starting at a net negative. Um, if I would look to something, obviously, we're going to look to see how much that now dips now that prices have gone through the roof, not only on gas, but on goods as well. Um, so that is the critical question, but we shouldn't assume that because inflation is hitting Americans hard, that they somehow are willing to compromise or switch it out for no longer being involved in supporting Ukraine. Mohammed, this new line that the administration is using around the inflation story, the Putin gas hike, is that resonating? Do they still believe that it's Biden's fault? Is it shifting at all? What is your read on that? One thing that we've known, Jonathan, from this, uh, at least at this point of the Biden administration, is they have failed at their number one objective, which is to minimize the partisanship in American public opinion. My answer to your question is essentially people that support President Biden will buy that line. Uh, but all the people that don't support President Biden uh, were complaining about gas prices long before uh, this uh, situation erupted. So I think, unfortunately, party ID is still going to drive primarily how people uh, react to President Biden's presentation of the facts. Great to catch up, Mohammed. As always, Mohammed Yunus at Gallup. We are looking at Ukraine, the war, some of the news is just flat out grim, and it folds over to the repricing in the Bloomberg world. The repricing is most critical on the buy side where the assets are held, and that includes Columbia Threadneedle. Ed Al-Husseini joins us now, their senior interest rate strategist. Ed, we're not talking price and yield today. We're talking markdowns, the FT with the article on BlackRock with a huge number given their scale. Do you presume that we will see markdowns on fixed income in the coming days? Yeah, I, I think investors broadly are crystallizing their losses on Russia holdings. And I think the good news so far is that we've not seen spillover effects, particularly demand for liquidity, demand for cash right. more broadly. So we're seeing margin calls in, in, in the you know, grand scheme of things, but they're not really triggering a massive run in the in, in the asset management system uh, overall. Explain the pressure, and I look at FRA OIS, which is one of the thermometers here, the short-term system, and it's ra it's elevated but range-bound and it's not broken out to a worse statistic. Explain the pressure on the buy side to reprice troubled debt. Does that come from guys like you? Do you call up the managers and say, look, you got to reprice this? How does that happen? 
So, so the fraud OIS in terms of dollar demand. Well, I mean, I mean bonds. I mean, I mean system. bills, yeah, notes, and bonds that are going to be marked down. Where does the pressure come from to mark them down? Uh, ultimately, the asset owners, right? Uh, I think this, by and large, if you look at Russian assets, there is a collective decision here in terms of asset owners saying we do not want exposure to uh, to this risk, regardless of how it unfolds in in the short term. So there's a broad movement out of uh, Russian debt and equities uh, in in the investment world. Uh, there's a broad movement of companies out of Russia as well. So we're seeing uh, exposure to physical assets in Russia getting written down, um, and altogether. Uh, that means we're taking the slice of Russia that's in the financial system out of the equation. Edward, there is an issue right now with respect to an exogenous shock. At what point, Ed, do we shift into something that looks like a growth scare? And I wonder at what point the R, the recession talks that we have been hearing sort of percolating up through yield curve discussions start to become that much louder. Yeah, I think I think we're we're, we're kind of there right now uh, to your conversation. The, the consensus view on U.S. growth is, is, is starting to weaken. Uh, if you look at the Fed's expectations, the Fed has a print of about four uh, for 2022 growth. That's likely to get marked down a little bit next uh, next week. But by and large, I think the good news is we're starting from a position of relative strength in terms of corporate balance sheets, household balance sheets, um, the labor market coming into, into this year. So we have some buffers to eat through before the risk of a recession uh, uh, becomes real. But I think that turning point usually happens when things are good. So unemployment, sub 4%, the yield curve, almost inverted. This is when you start talking about things starting to get worse. Ed, right now I'm looking at the interest rate expectations for the rest of the year, and we're still pricing in six or even seven rate hikes by year end, at least when it comes to Fed funds futures. Do you think that the rest of the complex of bonds and, frankly, everything else has factored in seven rate hikes? I think we've done a pretty good job. Yeah, and I think especially if you look at the credit space, the move wider in credit spreads, credit spreads, investment grade, high yield, you know, we're about at 15-month wides now. Most of that move has not been because the underlying fundamental story has deteriorated. It's been because of interest rate volatility. So I think we, we've done a decent job of, of pricing that in at this stage. So do you think right now the yields in the long end are basically going to stay where they are around 2%? Or do you think that as we contemplate this, I don't want to call it stagflationary, but uh, this sort of unfortunately high inflation rate impacting growth for a longer period of time that we could go significantly higher? The biggest question in debt markets is, will the Fed have to raise Fed funds above 2%? And if we have to price that, how quickly do we need to price that in? At the moment, we're priced for the Fed to get to 2% by the end of next year and kind of stay there. That's a relatively low level. Uh, it's not a level that's really squeezing the economy from a, from a growth and an inflation perspective. If we have to go there, that's a rapid repricing. I think that creates some downside for risk, and that very likely inverts the curve very quickly. Uh, potentially as early as the second half of this year. Ed, we've got to run. We've got to leave it there. Thank you, buddy. As always, Ed Al-Husseini there of Columbia Threadneedle. Right now, Lisa Bramitz and I are absolutely thrilled to present to you, as we've talked to General Kimmett, General Hodges, Admiral Stavridis, 
and of course the wonderful Angela Sten at Brookings, Myra Rodriguez, Vad Ares, uh, managing principal of MRV Associates, who is beyond esteem in the study of Russia. Her shingle is from Harvard of long ago, Marshall uh, Goldman and others. Myra, what does our audience need to know right now about the loneliness, the aloneness of Vladimir Putin? You know, this is a man who for a very, very long time has been planning this tragic invasion. And for anybody who's been observing this, sadly, you know, we're not we're not surprised. And, you know, I don't actually know how alone he is. I don't think so, because he actually has a lot, a lot of supporters. Uh, he has had support for decade amongst many, many Russians, not just at the upper echelons uh, of the Kremlin. Uh, and he also has still a lot of supporters in the former Soviet Union. I know right now we're obviously very focused on Ukraine, but he has a lot of supporters in, in Central Asia. And he has done this invasion because he, he really thought he could get away with it. What is the media getting wrong in our analysis right now? There's just a global onslaught of analysis of the military, the humanitarian crisis and such. What doesn't ring true to the analysis right now? I think there is a lot of truth in, in what the media is saying. However, I think that unfortunately, what my biggest fear is going to happen is that with time, there will be a level of wariness and there will be the next big story. And it could be coming out of Asia or the Middle East or who knows, right? There's always that unpredictability. And, and I worry that people are going to be weary and tired. And, and that's what Vladimir Putin is also counting on. I think that the media also needs to focus on the fact that the not only is there, of course, the tragic loss of life in Ukraine, there will be decades of incredible dislocation in that country from the psychological effects as well of being at war. Yeah. Uh, from a market's perspective, obviously a lot less important than the human toll, but the markets are also going to feel uh, the volatility for, for time to come. We're seeing a lot of action in metals, of course. We're seeing action uh, in in the spreads. But this is there's going to be a contagion effect right. in emerging markets. A contagion effect in emerging markets. We've been trying to game out the potential contagion effect for big banks. We've seen that certainly in the price action in European uh, institutions. How do you assess the potential risk at a time where it's not just the operations in Russia with the likes of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan exiting the region, but also so all of the instruments tied to it and then all of the instruments tied to the commodities that are significantly affected. How are you going about, given your Fed experience, gaming that out? Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm glad that you're reminding your viewers of it. From a credit perspective, American banks have very, very little risk with Russia. Uh, if you look at Goldman Sachs announcement that it's pulling out, you know, less than 1% of our, its entire assets are in Russia. JP Morgan, I happened to be working at JP Morgan when it was first getting into mm. Russian markets back in the, in the mid 90s, tremendously exciting period. But the assets as a percent of all of the over trillion dollar asset base for JP Morgan is very little. So from a credit perspective, 
perspective, the risk is low. The market risk, however, is much higher. You have all kinds of commodity-linked <clears throat> bonds. You have securitizations that yeah. are also based on Russian assets. You have foreign exchange portfolios. And then you have, of course, the fact that you have all kinds of countries like Sri Lanka, the former uh, FSU, you know, the former Soviet Union countries. Yeah. Uh, you have some in Latin America that are very interconnected to exports and imports with Russia, not to mention Africa, of course. So that's really where I worry that some of that spillover is going to happen more from a market risk perspective rather than a counterparty, a credit risk perspective. Are there specific banks, Myra, that you're keeping your eye on in terms of this risk expressing itself in a more concentrated fashion? Yes, I think definitely Societe Generale and Unicredit from Italy, those two banks are much, much more exposed to Russia from a credit perspective. And so then, of course, there's also the market risk perspective. Of course, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, because they are the largest trading houses, you're still going to see some volatility in their trading portfolios. And it's oh. not just going to be Russia and Ukraine. It's going to be all of the enormous right. emerging market portfolios that they trade. Myra, thank you so much. Too short a visit. We'll do it again very soon. Myra Rodriguez, Viaderas, thank you so much with MRV. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.